Part of our effort right now is to really diversify the people in the ecosystem across gender and ethnic status to get them involved, kind of feeling is you're not doing your best work, you're not getting your best results if you don't have a lot of different voices at the table. Doug Hogstad is the Assistant Vice President at Tech Launch Arizona, the tech transfer arm of University of Arizona. And he joins us today to talk not only about increasing the number of women and minority inventors, but also about angel funding in the Arizona ecosystem, and to tell us how TLA has already really helped drive innovation over the few short years it's been around. Doug, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Terry. I'm looking forward to it. To kick things off, maybe you can give me a brief overview of Tech Launch Arizona's work, perhaps some key figures as well. Sure, no problem. So Tech Launch Arizona started in late 2012. So we've been around for about, well, officially about eight years, but it's really been in operation just over, you know, maybe seven, seven and a half years. It was launched as a response to the university's desire to really invest and move forward on commercializing technologies. Prior to that, the university wasn't real strong in it, didn't invest very much in it, didn't really look at it as a benefit. And this was a huge turnaround for the, for the university, for the administration. And it has been, I would say, a pretty much a resounding success. We've had more or less double-digit compound annual growth over those years. I mean, we're still growing. Last year, we had over 260 invention disclosures, which was a little bit lower than we expected, but I think that's caused by the COVID situation. We had just under 100 total deals done. And again, that was, that was flat with the previous year, but again, we thought it would be growing. I think COVID affected that. But we did have a record year in our startups. We invest a lot of time, effort, and even some money in launching companies around these technologies. And we had 19 startups, which is the most we've ever had in a year. And over the years that we've been in operation, we've had over 100 startups, and almost all of those are still existing. So all that's really good. The other thing the university did over that time frame, they knew that investing in intellectual property was going to be really important. And so they increased the investment in intellectual property. And that's showing as well where we've had over 80 patents issued in the last year, which is significant growth from the normal years prior to that. I mean, it's been growing every year since we were here, but you know, it was in the, when we started, it was in the 20s and 30s and it's been growing. And now, like I said, that was, that was a big year for us too. I think all of that, no, I will say the way we look at patents it's not a goal to file patents and get patents issued. They're kind of like tender and they're really a cost until we get them licensed. We're conscious about what we're filing on. We're getting a lot more interaction with our inventors because of the efforts that we're putting into it. So overall, it's been a great, a great ride. And for me personally, it's been a great ride. It sounds really successful so far. As you said, a lot of your numbers were flat, mostly due to COVID, I guess startups record year. Do you see that trend continuing? Do you think you're, you're going to keep creating more and more startups going forward? I mean, obviously, there's, there's always an upper limit. You're not going to have to produce 200 startups in one year, but within reason. 
Yeah, actually, the way the way I track it is I look at similar sized research universities, and I look at kind of a ratio of startups to $10 million in research. So I can kind of normalize that number. From the data that's available in autumn, we should be at like 16 or 17 startups a year if if we're operating in kind of the top of our peers. And I think that's going to be very much our operation. I think we'll continue to have some growth. I don't think we're going to just stay at 16 or 17. I think over time, you know, we'll, we'll get into the 20s and that kind of thing, but it's not going to be 16 the year before, 19 this year, 23 the next year, 29 the next year. It's not going to be like that. That makes sense. I mean, if you're compared to your peers, it would be 16, 17, and you're already at 19 this year. You're already, you know, punching above your weight. So that's already phenomenal as well. My next question is drilling down a bit into the numbers. Do you have numbers on, on inventionist closures, engagement from, from women faculty or minorities? And how are you faring there? Yeah, and I, I apologize, I don't have them in front of me, but we are low like any other institution. And in fact, like the USPTO, the USPTO did commission some reporting and some research over the last couple of years, primarily on women inventors, but they've been expanding it to minorities as well. And if I remember correctly, I think it's at maybe less than a 20% participation rate among female inventors. And I would say we're right around the same, maybe even a little bit lower. But because of that, we're really focused on it. And the whole university has become very focused on the whole on, on minorities and women and getting interaction with them. Last year, we kicked off a series called Flourish Here, which was just strictly aimed at women, not just our inventors, but women in the whole ecosystem for entrepreneurship. This year, we're, we're expanding that, and we've partnered with the USPTO and with a company or a group called Future Forward. And we're going to do a series of four webinars over the next year that focus on both women and minorities and talk about different aspects of it, kind of what does it mean to be an inventor? How do you deal with having the different hats, an inventor, a researcher, a family person, all that kind of stuff? What, what does an invention look like? You know, so we kind of progress. It starts off very basic on what does it mean to be an inventor? And it moves through this whole series, really targeting getting more involvement from the faculty. Has that become easier or more difficult? You mentioned kind of family life there as, as the pandemic. I know a lot of women have kind of ended up becoming the housewives, maybe not voluntarily, just because that's they kind of fallen back into the traditional role. So just something that I was talking to Nicole Mercier, Washington University in St. Louis, and that's very much something that they observed. Women faculty kind of dropped off in engagement once the pandemic started. Is, is that something that you found as well? We've not found that yet. We have, you know, up front, we've already, we've been talking to our faculty a lot throughout the thing, but in particular in the last, let's say, three months. And, you know, we're getting, I would say, precursor warnings saying, listen, you know, because of the pandemic, because of the slowdown in research spending, because of staying at home, all those things that they expect their invention disclosure productivity to reduce over the next six months. So it's something that we're watching for that, you know, what, what is this going to mean to interaction with us? But we're going to do everything we can to support them. And the university has been really good 
about supporting everybody that's working at home. And I haven't heard anything specific. It doesn't surprise me what you said. I mean, that's kind of a stereotypical thing that's happened. Most of the families that I know, which are not the researchers necessarily, but people I work with, are pretty well split between the responsibilities at home between the husbands and the wives. As it should be, really. <laughs> My observation was not a uh, an endorsement of, uh, of of women staying at home. I should say that. <laughs> You've switched from, from corporate to university life roughly two decades ago. You first joined University of Michigan and then joined University of Arizona in 2013, I think it was. What prompted the initial move into academia and would you ever go back into industry? It's funny you say that. So what prompted the initial move was I was between jobs in the corporate world and I met up with a very good friend of mine who I'd worked with in a previous career. And he said, you know, Michigan's looking for someone with your skill set, with a software background and a kind of a management role. They want to really build a software licensing business through their tech transfer. So I met with them and I really, really liked the people that were running the office. Ken Nisbet was the director at the time and Robin Racer, who's now the director out at uh, Duke, was the licensing director. And they felt really strongly that I was a good fit. And it was, as you'd expect, moving from corporate world to higher ed, it was a salary reduction. But I really liked the people. I never expected it to last forever. And after several years, I was given the opportunity to go back to corporate world in a a relatively prestigious company. And uh, I talked to my bosses about it and I had to go home and think, what did I want to do? And my wife and I talked about it and said, all right, if I don't go, I'm making the decision that this is now my career. This isn't something in between my career. And I decided this is really what I wanted to do. I really enjoyed I enjoyed what I was doing, enjoyed the people I worked with. I realized this wasn't an in-between job. This was the job I wanted. That's how I ended up. So no, I don't think there's any reason I would ever go back to corporate world. I really, really like the people in general, you know, Autumn and all people involved I like working with. Locally, I really like our ecosystem. We have a lot of people that are vested inside and outside the university and seeing success. And it's just great to be part of that kind of, of ecosystem. That's wonderful. It seems to be that so many of your colleagues as well, they a lot of them end up in tech transfer by happenstance. And then it's 30 years later and they're like, well, that, that was a good six-month job that I took there. <laughs> There's, there. There seems to be something about tech transfer that just grabs people and never lets them go again. I mean, obviously some people do, but it seems to be a very small minority. The Arizona Alumni Association is more than 300,000 members across 150 countries. Are you actively engaging with alumni for investment, angel investment, mentorship for your startups? Yeah, we are in in many ways. And I'll start by going back to the earlier discussion about diversity. Part of our effort right now is to really diversify the people in the ecosystem across gender and ethnic status to get them involved. Kind of feeling is you're not doing your best work. You're not getting your best results if you don't have a lot of different voices at the table. So one of the things that we have is Over the years we've been here, we built up a network of about 1,500 people that have been called, have been talked to, and have said they will 
you know, they'll essentially, they'll answer a call from us. So these are all deep expertise people, entrepreneurs, C-level people, and the majority of those are alumni. And so what we did when we built the system was we worked to get alumni into the system across the country, but also just business expertise locally and regionally. So yeah, we are engaged. We believe that there's a lot more opportunity to engage with them. And that's another thing that we're going to be working on over the next years. I mean, we're going to start working on now. As far as your specific question about things like mentoring and investment, the mentoring, yes. The investment is not specifically to, to alumni, but the investment atmosphere here has grown significantly since TLA started. Since we've started, I think there were three new venture funds that were created in, in and around Tucson. We have, I don't know, one of the, I'll say top 10, that's about right. Top 10 most active angel groups in the country called Desert Angels. And we have a lot of individual investors and we just, we engage with them all the time. We have a smaller group of about 30 people that are both investors and business experts and kind of deep knowledge people that meet with us on about a bi-weekly basis just to talk about what we're doing and to talk about different opportunities and to lend their expertise. Sometimes they become mentors, sometimes they become board members. Sometimes they're just there to answer questions and give us advice. So that's been really successful as well. Amazing. On the other side of the pipeline, uh, you also have a student entrepreneurial fellowship at Technology Arizona that lets students get involved in the venture development team. How important is that to raise new tech transfer talent at Arizona and, and potentially elsewhere as well on a national scale? Well, it's hard to say how important it is. I think it's important. <laughs> it's relatively new. We just started it last year. We started it with the help of a, a donor who said that she wanted to figure out ways to get students involved in this world. Well, first of all, it's been very valuable to what we do. So what we do is we bring these, these student entrepreneurs in. Generally, they're higher level education, they're master's, PhD type students. Sometimes they're higher undergrad. And we assign them to work with one of our mentors and residents who are all been there, done that people. I mean, these people are part-time employees. They don't need to be working. They've decided that they'll work for us part-time just to help this ecosystem and they enjoy it. They, they have fun. So we assign them to work with one of them and kind of shadow them, provide support to them, and essentially kind of be feet on the ground as we're working on a project that will become a startup. The way we do it is... We only count it as a startup. Most universities do it this way. Once we execute a license with that company, and up until then, it's a project. And so we have a lot of resources that we can throw at these projects. One of them are these students to really move these along and keep people on task. It might be worth saying we also have, which a lot of universities have, a whole other group of students that we use for patent analysis and market analysis. We span the gamut from task-oriented, you know, understanding how to do patent analysis, understanding uh, market analysis, to really entrepreneurial expertise and understanding what it takes to start a company and how they can add value to that. Speaking of startups, this is my favorite question and everyone always hates it. What's your favorite startup? You know, they're all your babies, so there's not any that are ugly. You know, asking the question, I, I would say 
these kind of ones that are on task today, something that's really like top of your mind today are the ones that jump to mind. So a couple of them, we're working on one or one is, has been launched that is working on a non-opioid, non-addictive pain reliever that seems to be more efficacious than morphine. So really excited about that. That could have a worldwide effect. So that's one. We recently launched a company in response to COVID that I don't know how much you know about ventilators and kind of the negative parts of ventilators. First of all, they're not a great thing for your body. They're not great for the healthcare providers because when you're putting them in, you can get exhale spray on, stuff like that. They produced a breathing assist device that's totally encapsulated. And what it does is it combines helium and oxygen. So it allows, it's lighter and it allows oxygen to get deeper in your lungs. And it's totally encapsulated. So the helium is recaptured and the CO2, CO2 is scrubbed. And the idea being that you might never have to get onto a ventilator with this. And in the meantime, when your healthcare provider is putting it on, they're not exposed to spray, stuff like that. I'll throw one other one out just to show the gamut. So one was a drug, one was a device, and I didn't even plan this. It just worked out that way. Another one, this company is actually already successful. It's called NeuroID, and it's a really, really cool technology. It uses how you interact with a computer, moving the mouse, clicking on things, typing answers, to determine kind of a veracity score, how much trust is there in the answers that you're giving. It's being used by finance companies now for like uh, financial applications to determine, you know, is someone answering things honestly? It's not a lie detector, but it just lends a direction for people to follow. It's been very positive for them. It's, the angle is that it actually helps more people get funding because it gives people a sense of security in the people they're lending to. That sounds pretty cool. I like the... Um encapsulated not ventilator system as well that's uh, i mean i hope yeah. i never need it but it, it always uh, <laughs> it is always good to know that these things are out there in case yes I, that was my thought through this whole thing was that if something happens to me i really hope they have one of these <laughs> i i suppose you would be in a better position than most to uh, to get access to it so. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i have that kind of pull <laughs> just one more question final one is there anything that we haven't covered that you would want people to know about? What I'd want people to know is much of what I'm about to say is, does not come as a surprise, I don't think, to people in the ecosystem. It's really not about the university trying to make money. This has always been, um, as long as I've been involved in the groups I've been involved with, it's been about broadening the impact of what research is going on inside universities. And this is a way to get things out of the university and really both have an impact on people, but also have an impact on the researchers, letting them see what, you know, what the results of their research really is. You know, some people might, and I'm probably stepping into quicksand here, but some people might start to argue, well, then why don't you just give it away? And the reason is people don't invest in things that are free. If a company doesn't have an opportunity, to create value for themselves, then it's not something they're going to invest in to bring to the market. So the university's view on it is really get out there for a fair, a fair and reasonable way. 
and then move on to the next one. So we really want to have, it's like shots on goal. Get as much out there as you can. The other thing I guess I would throw out is I have been very fortunate and I've learned that really it's about an ecosystem. We've had a lot of success with growing our ecosystem here and that's what's made us successful. So I guess those are a couple of things. I think those are good closing words. Doug, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your busy day and joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Terry, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Hehlis. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email thehelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye.